Welcome to Kale in My Teeth, the podcast. I'm your host, Rifki Rabinowitz, an interior design trained lifestyle and wellness creator and mom to three girls. On each podcast episode, you will meet incredible women who have empowering, entertaining, and educational messages to share with me and with you. So stick around. It's wild and it's raw, just the way we like it. Welcome to Kale in My Teeth. For any of your followers who are finding me here, my name is Rifki Rabinowitz. I'm an interior design trained lifestyle and wellness digital creator who has segued into hosting Kale and My Teeth. Kale and My Teeth was born from my desire to hear from other empowering women discussing their expertise, their market niche, where I can learn from them and basically solidify my goal of becoming 1% better every day. And it's an honor to have you here. I am very inspired by your work by your career trajectory. So for any of my followers who are finding you here for the first time, please introduce yourself. I'm Kyla Fox. I too am a mother, but of two girls, not three. That feels like the best job of life. So I'm an eating disorder therapist and I'm the founder of the Kyla Fox Center. And what that is, for those of you that don't know, is an eating disorder outpatient, fully comprehensive recovery center. And I've been in practice for almost 20 years. And when I was in practice in the early stages of my career, I just was seeing clients, obviously, one-on-one. And I just felt like there was a huge gap in services for people who were suffering with eating disorders and their loved ones. And I used to talk about the want and the need to create a place to offer people comprehensive care so that they could recover in a really comprehensive way. Because when people are affected by eating disorders or disordered eating, the ways in which they need to recover are so unique to each and every person and the different elements of recovery are also really vast. And so I wanted to create a space where people could access recovery in a way that would really serve their personal needs and goals in having a safe and beautiful relationship with food and and their body and their life. I got so tired of talking about wanting to do this. So I just decided after 10 years of being in private practice that I would I would do this. I would I would open the center. And I did. And so so almost 11 years ago now, the center was was birthed. And um, here we are post COVID now fully virtual, which has actually we're going to keep it this way because it's proven to be such an amazing, effective way to help people in recovery while they're also actively in their lives. So instead of whereas before, people would need to come into the center, spend the day with us, spend time with us, organize childcare, take leave from school, work, all the different sort of logistical pieces that we all know COVID kind of took away, if you will. Now being fully virtual, um, we have this beautiful opportunity to actually bring recovery into people's lives and to be a part of people's lives in a really different way and that they can remain in their life and do recovery at the same time. And so there's this like really beautiful way that recovery interacts with life. And we also have this awesome opportunity to get into people's lives in a way that we never could before. Like I literally can get into their spaces. I can see their home. I can see their family. Loved ones from far away can join and be supportive. So it's actually proven to be an incredible thing that's happened for our center. That's it's so crazy. The silver linings that like that it brought to us, like this whole virtual world, there have been a lot of losses, like, you know, just my children's schooling, like we're still hustling to catch up, but like exactly like what you said, being able, everything is so much more accessible and available. So Mm -hmm. 
And speaking specifically to what you do, the difference between eating disorders and disordered eating and how prevalent is disordered eating with people who don't really understand that they have a problem and are basically need that emotional facial to actually like speak to somebody who can help them unearth all of those undealt with and unmet with emotions. And yet, because it's almost more insidious, it's not exactly dealt with and cared for in the same way as an eating disorder. It's a really hard distinction in some ways. So eating disorders are probably thought of to be more acute, more active. Maybe a person isn't able to be as high functioning in their life because they're more debilitated by the, the ways in which they're harming. So I think, I think, I think um, but, but there's a spectrum in that too, right? Because you can have a very, very, very serious eating disorder, highly active and still be out in the world and functioning and doing and parenting and working and doing everything that you would do. So I think the way that I think about it is like, disordered eating is probably ways that we think about like different kinds of restrictions or diet fads or things that people might eliminate or test or have like certain beliefs around why they can't do certain things or have to do certain things. And they're able to kind of manage through life, but they still have these rules and rituals that they have to follow. But they're, they're often seen as like actively supported culturally and by people around them because they're seen as like normal or healthy or good things to do, right? And this is where it gets really confusing. So a lot of people don't really know, oh, this is probably disordered. But I think anything that's disordered or on the spectrum of disordered or eating disorder is something that looks like a person doesn't maybe really feel like they have a lot of control over changing that pattern. Like they have to engage in it or they don't feel good if they don't do that thing or they feel badly about themselves if they break that rule that they're not supposed to break. So disordered eating, I think, probably lives more in the world of like diet culture and is probably really supported by like a healthified lifestyle Whereas like eating disorders, I think are really actively incessantly around harmful behaviors where a person is really incapacitated and has pervasive and intrusive thoughts that really interfere with their ability to live and function. Mm -hmm. yeah. Although with that said, this is where it gets tricky because I think people with disordered eating really feel that way too, but it just might not look the same. I know a lot of people with actively disordered eating don't feel like they can function when they break that rule about like sugar or carbohydrates or whatever mm -hmm. else they're they're mm -hmm. not so, supposed to be doing. Mm -hmm. So it's a tricky distinction. Yeah, I mean, it's funny because obviously as you're speaking, I'm trying to find myself whether it's in like, you know, specific eating or just behavioral conversations that we're having because we're really just talking about human psychology. And it's funny because it brings me to back like quite a few years ago, my whole, I fell in love with like the wellness industry because I fell in love with fitness and I wanted to eat in a way that really supplemented my goals at the gym. And in doing so, any kind of diet culture or restriction completely fell away because my focus was on eating away, eating in a way to power and comfort the machine that is my body. Because of that, I was, you know, cured from any kind of like toxic diet culture perspectives. Anyway, a couple, more than a couple years ago, quite a few years ago, I hung out with a, like a new, a new group of girlfriends. Maybe this is like five, six years ago. And I was in a really good place mentally. And 
this was over an elongated period of time. And I wasn't very aware of my body. My body was just the thing that I loved, that I cared for. And I, I, and they couldn't get over. This is actually, I don't need to qualify. Okay. They couldn't get, <laughs> I don't need to qualify. You don't, you don't, you don't um, they couldn't get over my physique and they couldn't stop talking about it and they couldn't stop complimenting it and they couldn't stop like, oh my gosh, you always wear, you know, like you, you don't show it off, blah, blah, blah. Like, where are you hiding this? And it, it kept going. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize how damaging that was until a few months later when I said to my husband, I'm tracking something. I'm tracking something. I was so not aware and obsessed with how I looked during that period until I started getting complimented for how I looked. And then I started being aware of how I looked, which then made me want to not only maintain that way of looking, but level it up. Yeah, totally. And it put me into like the dark ages of, of like a place that I thought I had gotten rid of. And I remember telling my husband, the irony of the whole thing was that, you know, we'll be sitting having a girl's time and I'll be having like a delicious latte with a hot chocolate chip cookie. And they're there with their athletic greens and supplements, like never missing a day of their supplements and their kale. And we don't really look different. Mm-hmm. So like, what a what an example of like, the power of the mind. So I, I think you, all- you highlight this really important piece around like the way in which we get attention or that we receive information around us really speaks so much to the things that we're supposed to be doing that are supposed to matter and that we need to keep up up with. And that can really change the ways in which we engage with food and our body, especially if we don't feel that great about ourselves. And we start to tweak some things and we get a lot of feedback about it. That becomes, a, like, like, like how you said, that becomes something that people really want to hold on to and really start to build their worth around. And then that can lead, can, can be one of the ways that it can lead to really active eating disorder behaviors in mm-hmm. order to maintain that experience. And like you said, want to level it up. Exactly. I had to really track my thoughts and get really curious about why I was having them to nip them in the bud. And then, as you said in the beginning, like that, that type A persona goes to me, well, where do we find that like sweet spot, that apex between body neutrality and an overly permissive perspective? Where do we consider where we're like, you know, the expression, like letting ourselves go for the sake of moving away from diet culture tropes Versus saying like, no, like I want to maintain a certain physique. And this whole conversation started going on in my brain. And I guess I'm retroactively resentful. I'm grateful that I, you know, surround myself with conversations like this. But what would you say to women? Because I know there I am far from the only one having this kind of like debate in my brain in this kind of conversation. It's a it's a really hard place to be in to to feel really comfortable and safe in your body and to like it and to take good care of it and to own it out in the world. I think what you're talking about is a, is a conversation that comes onto the table all the time around, you know, how can I take care of myself in the ways that make me feel good and like my body, but also really support what any body would look like and whatever my body would look like. And I think that's a really challenging place to come to Sometimes I think getting to safe places with our body isn't actually about maybe the body at all. It's sort of a 
about feeling safe in your life and feeling good in your life. Because I actually think when we do, like when we feel, when we can find those places, and I don't want to sound cheesy and like, you know, but I, I actually really think that when we feel really genuinely happy, like full, like, like when we're living really honestly, suddenly I feel like the body being like right here is just, it's now like kind of there, you know, like it doesn't, it doesn't take up the same space because it doesn't need to, because there's so many other beautiful things about a person's life that are actually worth interacting with beyond just the body like that. It must be an incredible experience, like a huge emotional roller coaster for you as the therapist, where you're kind of your clients, your patients are coming to you when they're in like a really dark, low spot mm-hmm. and you're pulling them out with the ups and downs. And speaking as somebody who has never had an eating disorder, but like many millennials and women and humans, of course, I've struggled with bouts of disordered eating. And what I find crazy is that it doesn't really matter how stable and secure your eating foundation is. I mean, I'm literally in the wellness industry and I'm constantly having debates with one of my brother-in-laws who's like a really brilliant intellectual about like the landscape of healthy at every size and moving away from like patriarchal standards of beauty. And yet even within that, me being like an advocate for all this, I guess you can say like body neutrality, Mm -hmm. I too... I struggle so much with the ups and the downs. So I can only imagine what it's like for people where this is their human experience and you're helping pull them out. Is there a generalized ebb and flow to recovery where you see like, you know, when there's a relapse, what you can expect and all of that? Or is it so individualized that science hasn't even come up with a way to figure that out? You know, it's a great question. I I think that it kind of depends. You know, I think that Obviously, depending on, upon when a person enters into our care, there's different ways in which they'll move through recovery. But I think what a lot of people don't realize is that eating, eating disorder recovery or really just like having a peaceful relationship with food in your body on any level of the spectrum is a timely thing. And it also takes a lot of time and it takes a lot of care. And so... I think the reality of moving through a process of recovery, which is really dark and really hard and requires so much consistency and so much effort and so much determination and so much support, I think, it naturally is going to come with a ton of ebbing and flowing. And I think the reality is in recovery from an eating disorder is that people will have symptoms in their recovery. There's this feeling that you're in recovery when you stop having your eating disorder symptoms. But actually, it's really different than, let's say, recovering from alcohol or drug addiction, where sobriety is the understanding and abstinence is the understanding of being well. You don't have that same privilege with food because you need food to live, whereas Mm. you don't need drugs and alcohol to live. So abstaining from food, from what you use and how harmfully you use, isn't an option. So recovery with food is like, it's like a relearning about how to be with food. And in that relearning, you you relearn how to be with your body. Maybe you've never actually even known how to be with your body and you're doing that for the first time. And it's also uh, a relearning of how to be in life 
And so the the reality is that there is going to be symptoms, but I think that symptoms are sort of sometimes these really golden moments in eating disorder recovery because they teach us so much about the spaces that we still need to look at, about the places in us that aren't yet full, that aren't yet honest, that aren't yet resolved. And then from there, we can sort of work through the symptom. We might do it quicker. It might not be as like a 10 out of 10 is what I call it. Maybe eventually it becomes a seven and a two and a one. Maybe eventually you don't have the symptoms as often. And then inevitably you won't have them for good, but it's going to happen. And so the ebbing and flowing of that is very real. And I feel really privileged to get to be a part of that experience with people and that they let me into their life in those ways and that they trust that I can take them along. And, help and you have a them. very calming energy. So Thank yeah, you. you do. What are some like common misconceptions about eating disorders that you've come across in your career? I think some of the really big ones are that you would, that having an eating disorder means that you would be quite acutely anorexic, meaning that you would look emaciated and, you know, probably young and probably white. And mm. nothing could be further from the truth. Eating disorders don't discriminate. Everybody can have one. It's not contagious, but it's certainly something that any person could develop because it's rooted in how a person feels about themselves. And it's rooted in the things that we've been through in our lives. And food then becomes a tangible way that we articulate that inner world of ourselves. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's really important to recognize that how a person looks on the outside does not dictate whether or not they have an eating disorder and or how severe their eating disorder is. Mm -hmm. Often people with some of the most eating disorders that I've ever seen over the 20 years of my career look totally normal, if you will. Mm -hmm. You'd never know it to see it. And that's why eating disorders often live in secrecy and silence, because they're not always visible to the eye like people think. Mm -hmm. So I'm reading a lot of articles that kind of explain why there's such a, you know, a toxic relationship between like the millennials and their body. And like you can go through if you Google like 2015 in touch cover and it's like splattered with just like blatant mockery of celebrities and a successful celebrity was considered one that almost looked like a bobblehead with like their big head and their like skeletal or skeletal body and you know big words fat we've come a long way where mm -hmm. you know we've really come a long way yeah. so my question to you is have you seen a lower incidence of eating disorders and disordered eating in like the Gen Z demographic, or is that wishful thinking? Wishful thinking. Wishful Sadly. Thinking. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I actually think eating disorders have never been more, more apparent than they are now. I feel like the amount of people who are suffering and the level at which people are suffering is more severe than I've ever seen before. I think a lot of that has to do with coming out of COVID and all of the things that happened for people during that time. But I feel like we're so inundated with so many messages, despite the fact that, like you said, we have really come a long way. There's a lot more body neutrality. There's a lot more body positivity. But there's still a ton of messaging around beauty and around bodies. And even though we're, we're trying to change that messaging, 
I feel like there's such a strong focus on who we're supposed to be and what we're supposed to look like and what our life is supposed to be like. And there's so much exposure and there's so much access. And I think it leaves people feeling very lonely and very empty and not good enough. And I think those are the things at the root of eating disorders. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Are there, and I I have a feeling I know what your answer is going to be, but for the sake of conversation, are there like, you know, I'll ask like um, a successful entrepreneur, are there consistent characteristics with startups that do well? Like, so I'm asking kind of a similar question to you. Are there certain similarities or compulsions in personalities that end up in these kind of harmful eating patterns? Yeah, I think so. I think there are a few. I think I probably have a lot of them myself, probably why I developed an eating disorder early in my life. I would say things like being really highly driven, type A personality, perfectionistic, insecure, Mm self-doubting, self-deprecating. I think um, ideas around worth are really important in terms of what that means for a person who's potentially at risk to develop an eating disorder. Mm -hmm. I think also when there's like, when someone feels a lot of shame Mm -hmm. and experiences um, the inability to express themselves emotionally. Mm -hmm. So if that hasn't been taught and if that's not accessible to them to be able to express themselves and talk about the things that they go through, I think feelings are the stuff that like we keep inside, right? And if we don't know how to communicate what we're feeling, we're going to put it somewhere, Mm -hmm. you know, we're going to take it out somewhere. And so I think if we don't have a lot of experience with that and a lot of comfort with that and a lot of encouragement, which is a great thing, like leading into our conversation eventually about being a parent Mm -hmm. and raising kids, like really welcoming openness around feelings and what feelings are and that it's okay to have all of them. Mm-hmm. So I think those are common things that people feel and experience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, it's ironic because the the beginning of the action are all of those emotions or feelings that you just listed, right? And then like the cue or the behavior that follows is basically whether that's an eating disorder or harmful behavior or destructive decisions, like on a macro level. The purpose of doing those things is to either numb or solve those negative feelings. And the irony of all of that is that by doing those things, you're only not, not only solving or healing or numbing, you're exacerbating and continuing it. So exactly. Yeah, it's it's it's, it's like two awesome. punishments for the price of one in a way. Like I kind of look right. at it like all the feelings that you have. Right impact you and then you're trying to sort of find a way to soothe or comfort or avoid or all those things that you that you named but in doing that you end up harming more so you have the harm of the feelings that are unresolved still plus the harm that you're engaging in so you have double this harm all the time you can never relieve yourself on any level right it's it's incredibly painful what are some prompts or tools that you give patients when they're kind of in this continuous toxic habit loop? Well, one of the things that we really focus on at the center and that I think is really important is like when when people think about eating disorders in general, they think about two things mostly. They think about food and they think about the body. And of course, eating disorders show up in food in the body. So you would think about that and you, you would talk about those things and you would look at those things and you try to change those things or repair those things. But in actuality, Like eating disorders actually have really nothing to do with food or the body. That's just where they show up. 
And so what we're really trying to do is help people get to those like pieces that are underneath food in the mm. body, right? Like that stuff that you were talking about, that's like all the stuff that people are feeling and avoiding that then shows up in food in the body. That's where we're trying to take people to. That's what we're trying to help people face and understand and find comfort in and find resolve with or be able to have a voice to. And so I think part of the really important work that happens in eating disorder recovery is, of course, when we're doing that deep work, we're not avoiding food in the body at all. But for us at the center, we're doing both at the same time because we know that that deep work is really where the eating disorder is rooted. People need to understand like the why behind what they're doing. They need to really have a sense of what that is and why, where it comes from and why they're behaving the way that they are and why they're impacted the way that they are. When we can know things about that, then we can change our behavior with food and the body. So we're doing both of those things at the same time when we're working with people always. I mean, that sounds incredibly difficult. The part that I think is probably the most difficult, I would imagine, is you're in like a state almost of emergency or incubation or like really needing to act in a timely manner. And very often when you're in that situation, we'll use like a kid crying, for example, when your kid is completely dysregulated and spiraling out of control, they don't want to hear, hey, what's going on inside? Mm -hmm. They need to be like removed from the harmful situation, as I described in last week's Kill in My Teeth, where my daughter was throwing Lego at me. Like I wasn't trying to get to the root of her angst. I was removing the Lego from her hand and removing her from harming herself or me more. So how do you balance wanting to get to the why, wanting to get to the root of the issue, but at the same time, you're in a state of saying, I, I need to help you stop this harmful behavior or this might lead to something way worse. I love your example. I think what it illuminates is that you can't get people to those deeper places when they're in the symptom. Mm -hmm. So we do need to take people out of the symptom in order for them to then be able to find regulation. And maybe once they're there, you know, like once your daughter sort of calms down and you can hold her really tight or the time has passed, we can go back to it right. and talk about what happened differently mm -hmm. and learn from it and try to have repair around it and communicate about what it felt like and mm -hmm. why she got to those places and what we could do differently next time and what it felt like for her and what it felt like for you. So I think the same is true in this, if you will. It's like, you, you can't take people when they're at like five, five alarm blaze and you're putting out fires to try to have more deeply emotional or intellectual conversations. You do just like you said, need to, need to deescalate the situation. But once it's done, once it's come down, then I think there's a really beautiful place to start talking about what happened. And often I think that gets missed. You know, because it's a scary place for people to move into. Like, why did you do that? Or where did, why did, how did we get there? Or what did you need differently? And a lot of people don't know how to have those more vulnerable conversations. But that's kind of, I think, where a lot of the really beautiful pieces lie. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. What kind of therapy methods, number one, have you found helpful in your journey? And number two, do you utilize in your practice? There's a lot of therapeutic modalities that get a lot of backing because they're evidence-based and there's a lot of research towards them and they are very effective. Like things like CBT and DBT really helping people to change their thoughts in order to change their behaviors. 
and bringing awareness to things like that, especially when people have concurrent diagnosis of like, you know, BPD or other things that intersect with the eating disorder, which is often really common. I really feel strongly and at the center, the, the sort of basis of the foundation really comes out of, out of a philosophy that I've created in all of my years of practice, which is about really understanding the eating disorder, the binging, purging and restricting that happens with food, really seeing those symptoms in life way beyond the food. So seeing the way that binging, purging and restricting happens in life, you know, like the way that you've been impacted by people that have left you as an example, let's say of restriction or how you may be in mesh or binge on, let's say love relationships. You know, there's different ways that binge, purge and restrict shows up in life which is then why we always see it in food as a reflection or in opposition to the life experiences. So we teach a lot about this at the center and we talk a lot about this. But I also feel like, you know, no two people have the same eating disorder, despite the fact that they may have similar symptoms. So no two people require the same, the same treatment. You know, there's, we do a ton of trauma, trauma focused care, a lot of narrative therapy. You know, there's not just therapy at the center, it's all the nutrition work and the body work right. that we do. And there's so many complex ways that we have to enter into supporting someone with an eating disorder. I don't ever feel that one modality would ever fix or solve every single person with an eating disorder. So I sort of feel like being a really, a really effective therapist or practitioner at, at the center or in general, if you're working with someone, is about having a lot of tools in your box and really knowing how to help a person access the things that they need in order to talk about the things that they need to talk about in safe and in effective ways. And then also translating that into food in the body. It's so ironic because there's such a duality to all our characteristics. All of our strengths are our weaknesses. So for example, you started off saying a recurring personality, and of course, everyone's different, but is you know being a perfectionist or being type A, and my husband is not a perfectionist nor type A, but he is on, he committed to like a fitness program with a coach, which is something he never prioritized in our entire relationship. And so I'm so proud of him. He called me one day this summer and I was in Miami. He was here and he's like, so I spontaneously just signed up for this thing. And I'm like, this is amazing because especially because I'm not there. Like I've always been the one that's so um, vocally passionate about moving your body. So I was like, this, this is amazing because I wasn't there. Like this is all you. And I'm so proud of him because he created a goal and he's sticking with it. And I'm actually friends with his coach. And so I keep telling my husband and I keep texting the coach and I keep saying, your program's amazing. It's a tight program, really well balanced. You're creating really good structure for a long-term wellness life, wellness-focused life. But my husband, I said, let me tell you something. There are so many men in my life who could benefit from going on this program. And all of the work is my husband. You have to be so committed. You have to be so focused. And so as amazing as the program is, it's amazing watching somebody take a goal and really tackle it. It's so hard. But and some so, of it might have also been around like time and his readiness and his want, oh, right? Like that's all what I'm those getting pieces. At. Ultimately, the success of any program is contingent on the readiness 
of the client. And so you can't force yourself to be ready before you're there and you can have the most groundbreaking program. And if the client is not mentally, emotionally, physically ready enough and stable, it'll, it will go nowhere. I agree. I mean, I think that's the hardest part. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Go ahead. No, please, honey, cut me off. (laughs) I think that my, I guess what my question is, is at what point do you think that in order to be ready, somebody has to hit rock bottom? Well, it's, it's, it's interesting. You know, I, I, I love the whole story that you shared about your husband, because I, I think it, I think it plays out so, so perfectly in thinking about recovery. But I, I, I mean, I think a lot of people do. I think a lot of people do need to feel their bottom that could be different for each and every person. The, the, the important thing to remember about eating disorder recovery is that I'm not sure that everybody gets to a place where they're like, I'm ready. I'm ready. Let's do it. I actually think we work with more people who are not ready, but then become more ready through the process. Because I think letting go of the harm is incredibly frightening and incredibly exposing. And so I'm not sure that anybody feels always ready to do it. I say that because I want to encourage people who maybe don't feel ready that you can still find recovery. True. There's no like magic. There's no like, oh my God, I'm ready. But can I ask you something? Yeah. This is something that most people live a life struggling, even when they're in recovery. Am I right in saying that? Like that people have to have eating disorders forever and ever and always? Well, not in such binary terms, but are you, is one embattled for the rest of their life and has the same impulses for the rest of their life? And if so, how can you live a peaceful life while you sometimes feel like you'll never stop treading water or are in a state of resisting your impulse? I feel so strongly that people can fully live without eating disorders. I really do. Like, I mean, I really do. I I really do. I, I feel like, I feel like that often isn't the message that's given out and that there's this thinking that like, once you have it, you'll always have it, or you'll have elements of it, or you'll never really be able to find freedom, or you'll never really love your body, or you'll always kind of have to look over your shoulder for that eating disorder to jump out. I really disagree. I feel like I have witnessed so many people, and, and I feel like I'm a part of that, to, who have had really unbelievable battles with food in their body, and who live freely without the incessant noise or preoccupation, or even just a little bit of noise and preoccupation. I think that, again, it comes back to that other work beyond food in the body and really trying to find and working to find a really beautiful and rich and satisfying and safe life. And I think when we can do that, we really can have safety with food. I really feel we can. I got a lot of questions from my community. Let's Let's do it it because most of these questions were geared towards like the adult experience and then we can like shift our like cognition over to parenting. Okay, great. One question that I got, which I thought was uh, very smart was how to balance body positivity and food neutrality when you are having to limit foods for health reasons, i.e., like Hashimoto's or something like that. Mm -hmm. Like how to project that outwardly or how to 
feel neutral about it, knowing you can't have certain things? Uh, my guess, it's a small question box, but my guess is <laughs> it's that it's how to, how to feel neutral when you're in, you know what, like how to, I guess, avoid scarcity mindset. I'll give you an example to kind of illustrate this a little bit more. One of my first forays into wellness and like um, eating in a very bountiful way was I was trying to heal my skin, which I knew was a symptom of my hormones being um, dysregulated. So I connected with a naturopath. And within 10 days, she was able to do for my skin what none of the best estheticians and dermatologists from uh, Yorkville to NOLA could do. (laughs) And it was amazing. I was on a high, I couldn't get over it. Keeping in mind, this was like my first introduction to the power of food and nutrition and how it affects your skin. This is like maybe nine years ago. And what happened was that for the next few months, I was abstaining from all the foods that were I don't want to say allegedly because scientifically they were causing all of that inflammation. But what was happening on the side was that I was becoming fearful towards certain foods, i.e. no tropical fruits because of the high sugar content, but you can have berries, apples, and pears. Now, again, on the glycemic index, that might be tracking. But in the reality of life, God didn't create mango for you to fear it. Okay. So that was what was happening for me until Mm -hmm. I had to kind of let go of it and make the decision, the informed decision to be like, eating this might make me have an inflammation, but that's a decision that I'm choosing to make because food doesn't have power over me. Yes. So it put me into a very restrictive mindset Mm -hmm. unintentionally because my goal initially was just simply to deal with what was going on inside of me hormonally. Right. So that's kind of the example that I'm giving. How do you synthesize those two things and stay neutral and unafraid? So I think that a lot of people have, you know, illnesses or different kinds of things that they have to deal with through their diet. And that may feel restrictive. And and in some ways it is. Right. Now, I like the idea that you suggest around recognizing that if you have those things, it may lead to the breakout that you don't want to have. But you also want to have the experience and be able to go to the party and do all the things that everybody else is doing and feel like you're a part of the experience. So I think it's really important. Like, you know, I don't I don't have to live by those kinds of restrictions, if you will. I don't have an illness that that I have to live by those kinds of restrictions. My mom is a cancer patient right now. There's certain things that she cannot have in her diet and she has to live by that. I think that in order to be able to be comfortable with it, first of all, I think a person has to accept it and feel like they can do work around what it means to, to, to do that. But I also feel like within the realm of life, which is a long experience, you know, maybe it doesn't always and forever have to look like that. Like maybe there is the place where those restrictions can open up a little bit. I think we do develop fears around food when we realize like we can't have them and they're bad and they're wrong and they're dangerous. And I really like to step away from food, like you said, having that kind of power and us being in prison to those kinds of beliefs. I think if we can actually be with food in a safe way, and maybe there are certain things in knowing our health and accepting certain parts of our health that we can try to navigate around generally, I do feel like there has to be space where we can open up to engaging with food without restrictions some of the time because, you know, 
I think, I think obviously health issues require us to maybe do certain things, but I think living a really free life sometimes requires us to break those rules. Yeah, really well said. It's funny. Um, I don't eat dairy and I haven't for a really long time. And the past couple of years, my husband not being like privy to all of like the psychological dialogue that goes on in our brains as women, I think like, well, not to like limit it just to women, but I would say in my marriage, just me for no, maybe two years ago, I overheard my kids saying, guys, did you just see that mommy had a bowl of cereal? Like, not not that it was not dairy, but mommy had a bowl of cereal with almond milk, but we've never seen her have cereal. Moms don't have cereal. Mm-hmm. And a light bulb went off in my brain and I was like, whoa, like, I don't ever want my girls growing up thinking that you hit a certain age or you give birth and you're you having cereal. Your your moms don't eat cereal. Moms have zoodles with their meatballs. You know, like that's what happens. So I made the informed decision. My husband, not knowing all this, is like, you say you're dairy free, but no, no, no. Exactly like what you said. I may make the decision to live without dairy for ABC or XYZ, but I will 100% make sure that every time I take my kids for ice cream, I'm getting a scoop with them because the the shared experience is so much more important to me than the priority of this arbitrary rule that I've created Created. within myself. But I think sometimes this is the important thing. This is sort of like that disordered eating spectrum, right? Because, you know, sometimes we don't maybe have a health issue, but we might think we do, or we believe that if we eat certain things, it will do certain things to us. And so then we don't have them. And it's considered like, it's approved or it's considered, it's supported, it's it's healthy, but it is restriction. It mm. is on the spectrum, right? Of course, of course. Right? And so I no, feel like these are really just important questions to ask yourselves all the time. Like, why are you not eating that thing? What is that really rooted in? You know? I mean, it- I could, I, I look at cow's milk and I break out on my chin. Like, <laughs> I look at cow's milk it's like hey i'll drive by a farm and i'll break out on my gym okay so no it's not nothing to do with like digestion or anything like that but i value the way my skin looks and again let me tell you something for all of those shared parenting experience with a kitty scoop of mint chocolate chip ice cream i wear it on my face after yeah and i think actually you know what though i feel like that's part of the knowing right like I want to have this full experience. I want to model this for my kids. I want to be a part of it. I don't really like when my face blows up. So I, you know, I'm, I'm thoughtful of that, but I'm not going to miss out on being a part of what this is with my kids. It, yeah. I mean, listen, I grew up, my mom is, um, forget the actual term, but she eats like fish and eggs, but no like chicken or meat. And so a pescatarian. It's 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 vegetarian pescatarian. I I um, no something. Um, I'm gonna Google it after because like the combination matter. of the egg, I know yeah it doesn't actually matter. But in any case, I grew up thinking that like moms don't have steak, mm-hmm. and it was for this is completely health reason. My mother's like the peak of health and and balanced eating. But in my childish brain, I grew up assuming that when I saw a woman eat steak, it seemed masculine to me. Mm-hmm. You know, and so like that was another lesson. And obviously, like I look at my mom and she has a very balanced approach to life. So it didn't impact me in the same way. But it's like these simple developmental developmental things that we create because really and this is a perfect segue into kind of bringing this into parenting. 
it seems when we're little, it's like, it seems like our parents have all the answers. Oh, I, of course. They're, yeah. they're, we're, we're sponges to them. There are How old are your kids? Life. I have two daughters. My older daughter is seven, and my younger daughter is going to be six in two days. Oh, wow. Cute. <laughs> I know. Wow. I can't okay, believe so, it. So, girl moms. Girl yes. moms. Girl moms. Okay. Which I think was, like, intended for me or something, you know? Really? It's a good way to yeah. look at it. I just, yeah, I feel it. You know, I want to, I want to change the way it happens for them mm -hmm. from the way it happened with me. Well, they're yeah. very lucky to have you who like your calling is saving, saving women. Oh, like yeah. how nice for them that I that's just like in that. their back pocket. Uh, although I, my, my biggest like insecurity and fear as a mom is that like, you know, people will say like, I really enjoyed this episode of Kale and My Teeth. I was able to, you know, pull this out of it or pull that out of it. And it makes me feel so like connected and amazing. But I'm like, the irony of it all is like, my kids will be like, my mom? Like, <laughs> my mom? You know, so like sometimes when it's their own kids, they don't really want to hear. It's true. I, I hope they do. Mine are also, I have 10, 7, and almost 6. Amazing. amazing. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about creating a balanced relationship to food as you're raising your kids. Buzzwords we should avoid, helpful terms that we should replace that with, and a shift in perspective that creates like a very holistic, neutral, calming energy around diet. And by diet, I don't mean what we think it means restricting what you're eating, but diet as in your approach eating. to food. Okay. So first thing I think is that it's really important in homes that we don't have like good food, bad food, healthy food, unhealthy food. You can have this only if you do this, or if you finish that, then you can have this, or you've had enough of that, or, you know, just all the talk that I think a lot of parents do. I think really being able to teach kids about like neutrality is like starts right from the get go. And I think we're modeling that as parents all the time. So I think first things first, we got to check in with ourselves and see where our own eating disorder, disordered eating stuff lies and how we're projecting that information. Because like you said, you know, when you're a kid, your parents are heroes, they're sponges to your experience, and they absorb every single thing that you do. So I feel like as parents, one of the things that I think is really important is getting in on food with your kids. I love teaching my kids about the magic of food. We don't talk about it in terms of like healthy, unhealthy, good, bad, treat, no treat. We talk about it like can you believe how that carrot, when you ate it, like it made your eyes so strong that you could see your school from our house? Oh my God. Like we talk about it in those kinds of ways, like trying to teach about the power of food and how it makes us feel and how fast we can run and how good our math can be and how well we can read. So I think like it's trying to sort of think about it beyond like the nutrient quality of it and more about the power of it. But I also think there's a lot of things that happen when kids are really young, especially. And as adults, we're really trying to be so thoughtful by organizing our children's relationship with food that I think we end up actually interrupting it. And so like when kids are really little, and this was actually an incredibly illuminating part of when I became a parent, I actually couldn't really believe it. Like I would watch my kids with food, even when they were like, you know, babies. And I would watch like how they would eat or how much they would eat. And I sometimes would remember thinking like, oh, I think they need more. Or like maybe that's way too much. Or feeling all these things that would come up. 
And just like, instead of interrupting it, I was really encouraged to just like watch it and allow them to really tap into like their own body and what their body wants and what their body needs. One of the things that I think we do as adults is we interrupt those innate cues that actually really lived in all of us, most all of us when we were little. And we interrupt it by saying like, you got to finish your plate. Or like, I think you need more of that before you have that. Or in order to have that thing, you got to finish all of that. And we sort of get in the way of allowing our children to have their natural cues around hunger and fullness develop. Like sometimes my six-year-old has two bites for dinner. Sometimes she has three plates. I just kind of watch it. I just like let it be whatever it is because a lot of it is dependent on like what she ate in the day, how she's feeling, if she's tired. Like these are the interesting things that I think we don't really feel comfortable enough as people around that we have to kind of be on things all the time. And I think when we're doing that, we actually take away from a child's opportunity to be in relationship with food and learn how to like it and love it and what they want and when they want it. So I think that's a big thing. Just like watch a little bit more. Don't interrupt so much. There's so much we can learn as adults watching our children be with food and how they are with it. It's actually an incredibly beautiful thing to watch. So just hold back. It's funny because two things. Last week, I mentioned that I had on Unconditional Parenting, who's a parenting expert. And guys, if you want to like almost listen to these episodes back to back, it might be a really nice experience for you. But she was saying that she, similar to what you're saying, like I'm going to kind of try to dilute it to kind of get through it as quickly as possible. But essentially, what we do as parenting, as parents, whether that's food, behavioral, it's just getting curious about what's going on inside and the why of the behavior. And it's so simple and it's yet the hardest thing ever. And it's really the ideal way to conduct all relationships, adult to kid. And that if we continue to parent respectfully, our kids will actually want to kind of clue us in. Mm-hmm. So it's funny because my oldest daughter, this was the biggest, you know, we learned from our kids. This was my Amazing. biggest Oh my gosh. So she's an incredibly picky eater. She basically just eats like yogurt and cereal. And so, you know, when I started feeding her, um, it was all of like the, you know, lower sugar and adding in the healthy sugars into the yogurt and all of that. And listening to a lot of books and podcasts and reading and how to integrate, how, how to help her experience a little bit more a diverse range of foods. And I gave up. 200% I gave up. I can attach some virtue to it, virtue to it by saying it was creating stress with my relationship to her and I value the longevity and the peacefulness yeah. between us more so than I value her getting in a complete full range of nutrients. Yeah. So I kind of was just I put my hands up. My goal is that as she grows up she herself will want to integrate more nutrients to kind of figure out what makes her tick. And as you said, what makes her feel the most powerful? Cause like we kind of speak in the same way in my house, having said that. So my relationship with her is great when it comes to food, there's no tension, no prompts, like no coercion right, or manipulation, Yeah, which is a real win. The part that I struggle with is that her diet is really devoid of, of any, the nutrients like, that she needs. 
really devoid of it. Like I have, I have like, if, if we took a photo of my fridge every year, like the yogurts have gone from like the ones that, you know, I'm sure, you know, all the brands to now I'm like Instacarting the Oreo topped yogurt with a higher sugar content than ice cream. I don't care. I just want her eating. I don't care. I don't want to be on top of her. Mm -hmm. She's in grade five. Mm -hmm. I'm hoping for the best. What kind of advice do you have for any other moms who are dealing with the same situation and really feel like they want their kid to kind of be having a little bit more of a range of foods, but also really want to stay kind of chilled? Yeah. Picky eating with kids is a real thing that, that we talk about a lot at the center. And so one of the things that I would really recommend is like just putting out the foods that you would like your child to explore, you know, like put it on the table, you know, and you eat it and everybody else can eat it and just kind of have it there. I actually think when we can give space for those things to be around and we can familiarize everyone with it, then there may be moments eventually where people might, where where kids might want to go to it. I think if like you have it on the table and it's just part of what you do, maybe eventually she might open up to understanding it or being curious about it. But I also think it's good to talk about it as well. Mm -hmm. You know, like, what is it that, like, what is it that she loves and why? Like, what is it about other foods? Like, what does she feel about the other foods? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, why don't they, why don't they make it to her plate a lot? Like what, what happens to her? Like, I think it's it's actually, I just think it's really important to, to be curious with our kids about why they're doing the things that they're doing and to create safety around what they're doing so that they can start to open up to talking about it Mm -hmm. and maybe changing it eventually. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think that ultimately it's what she has to come to by herself where we take our after school snack very seriously. They're fruit, veggies, cookies. We got it all covered. There's a texture sensitivity. I mean, this Mm -hmm. is a kid who will literally gag when she walks into a room so I've kind of, like I said, I've put my hands up and I'm hoping that nature will take its course. But I started off asking and we kind of got sidetracked based on all of my like anecdotes. What are some terms and words that you think are potentially harmful and what are other, what is other terminology that you would replace those with? So we talked think, about like, the I think good, it's harmful to bad. say good and bad. I think it's yeah. harmful to say healthy, unhealthy. I kind of think it's harmful to say treat. I think that there's something really important about food just being food. Let's just let food be food. It's all food. It's just there. Because I think what ends up happening when we categorize food like this in these ways with our kids, then there's a lot of feelings that they start to develop when they have those things, like what those things mean, and then therefore what it means about them. If they eat the bad food, they're bad. If they eat the good food, they're good. And I think we don't want food to have that much power. We just kind of want food to be neutral. We want food to be food. So I would really, really caution you to to just keep food that way. Mm -hmm. Take away the labels, take away the things that we like, like to categorize food in certain ways because we want our kids to not develop strong feelings about food one way or another. We want them to feel like what they eat is okay And they don't need to like sneak away and have the bad food so you can't see that they're bad. We want them to just be able to find freedom with it. Mm -hmm. It's really important that we we, we really have to change the language about that when it comes to being parents with food. 
So one thing that we do, and I'd love to hear your honest thoughts on this. And Stephanie okay. tells me, I think I know. Um, <laughs> I don't want to be so bold as to assume. But um, Friday night dinner in our home when we don't yeah. have guests or when we're not eating out is like the most delicious, incredible, amazing time of the week. Um, we're all just like really, you know, snuggly. And, and we're like, my husband and I are like the, the ideal parents. We wish we were the rest of the week. The rest of the you know week. what I mean? Yeah. Oh, it's amazing. So. There's a weekly uh, Torah portion, which we, the kids learn in school. And a lot of them are amazing, like stories. And so a couple of years ago, we started going through the portion with them and making it exciting and, you know, coloring in the details and things, you know, figuratively. Right. And my husband, what he does is when they, when they answer, he'll give them a little treat to make it exciting for them, to make it interactive for them. And they look forward to it all week, you know, by the, from the time we sit down till we're ready, we're literally, they're panting at our heels. Let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go. So it's definitely like a spiritual win. Yes. Um, what are your thoughts on that kind of thing? Like food being like a reward kind of thing, like food being, or just in this particular scenario? Well, Number one, food being a reward, because that's clearly what this is. But number mm -hmm. two, on the flip side, if food is a connector, mm -hmm. Which it and is. right, if food is a connector, and if this is something that's important to us as parents to connect over this weekly Torah portion, mm -hmm. and the food is um, an incentive in a certain regard, does it still have the same like weight to it, like what you said that like, you shouldn't be attaching so much emotion to it. And if so, what do you suggest? Well, it's, it's, it's tricky. Like, I mean, but if you think about it, like any holiday, any celebration has food, different foods associated with it that I think we look forward to. Right. So like, I can appreciate that you've built this tradition that your kids look forward to. And it's something that's really exciting and you do connect around it. Now, like, I mean, maybe it would be just an interesting test, maybe, just to see what would happen if you popped up something different instead of just like, I don't know, whatever the treat is. But like, just to see what would happen. I'm sure the whole thing would probably flop. But, well, this, um, is, this is also a really smart comment that knowing you, they probably have unrestricted candy all week. Yeah, like I don't, we're not a big candy household, but I also, as you said, like I don't have any like big rules about it. Right. And this is a really good point and also very comforting because this is something that I've been wondering that they're more excited about the recognition and you giving it to them. I really do think that they'll grow up. It's about the experience. Association. Yeah. It's about the experience. And so we all have experiences with food. It's like, it's why kids get excited about Halloween, right? Like, it's like, you know, the different, the different things that we associate with food that people get excited about. None of that is bad. None of that right. is wrong. Right. You know? And so I think, I think if that's a tradition, it's totally fine. I think, again, that doesn't have to do with like the language around food or just how we normalize food through the day to day. And I think that's what we want to try to establish in the day to day generally is just like how to be safe with food and neutral with food with our kids. Mm -hmm, yeah. Mm -hmm. I could go on and on with you. You are such a wellspring of knowledge and your delivery. I can only imagine how safe your clients feel chatting oh, with you. Thank you. For your sake, I try to keep the conversations within an hour and we are well <laughs> over. So I definitely want to start wrapping up. My second last question would probably be, what are some resources, books or podcasts that you would suggest to parents 
who want to learn a little bit about this. But I specifically know my community and I don't want resources that cause any analysis paralysis or feelings of insecurity or just out of control having to shift too much. We got a lot going on. So, you know, I think that like if we're talking about eating disorders specifically, I think I really I really like the book Life Without Ed. I think it's a really accessible way to kind of understand when a per- when a person is suffering with an eating disorder and what that actually feels like in their mind. And it really helps loved ones to kind of get a sense of what that person is going through. So I think that's a really valuable eating disorder resource. Um, but I I love I love, you know, things that are about like inspiring people to like live their best life and try to have a really comfortable relationship with themselves and with food. Like feeding kids in color is someone that I think is really great to follow or like feeding littles is another one. I think I think is is if we can move away even from eating disorders specifically and focus on, you know, different things that you love to do that make you feel happy and that like even bring different kinds of energies to kids like around teaching them about like meditation or like tuning into their feelings or you know I I happen to have a really um, important yoga practice in my life it's been something that I've been doing for over 20 years and like I do that with my kids and it's just like different ways that I think we need to think beyond eating disorders in order to help ourselves actually get closer to ourselves and more connected to ourselves please let us know where we can find you what you're up to next because I definitely want everybody to continue following you because you have such an important message. So you can follow me at Kyla Fox Recovery. And the center is www.kylafoxcenter, center spelled Canadian. Thank you so much for being on. It was an honor and a pleasure. And you're amazing. Thank you so much for having me. And that's all for today, you guys. Thanks for tuning in. If you really enjoyed this episode and feel like it brought you value, I would love if you could rate and review Kale in My Teeth. It takes three seconds and lets me know the kind of episodes you like and want to see more of. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss a thing. And of course, you can find the guest's information in the show notes and find more of me on Instagram and TikTok at Rifki Rabinowitz and my website, RifkiRabinowitz.com. Chat soon!